Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. When we received a message from a listener about embracing white identity, we knew we had to talk with her. Today, we're taking the Friday feedback to a new level as we discuss race and politics with Tamala Blaylock. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of The Briefcase. Uh, thank you for every to everyone who has been following us on Facebook and our new Instagram account, at Pantsu Politics. If you'd like to become a supporter of Pantsu Politics, you can go to pantsupoliticsshow.com and make a one-time donation or become a subscriber, which helps us cover the cost of the program. So we're about to share with you, I think it's fair to call it a conversation instead of an interview, a conversation with our yeah. listener, Tamala who frequently shares just incredibly thoughtful and truly enlightening messages. And we wanted to have her voice heard with our broader community. My name is Tamla Blaylock. I live in the Washington, D.C. metro area. I work in the trade association world. And trade associations, we represent, support, and lobby our respective industries. So that can be anything from 
beverages to pharmaceutical companies that, I mean, the joke in D.C. area is like there's an association for everything. Like if you think of something, there's an association for it. Um, but I love it. And I never knew it's what I always wanted to do. And I will do it till I'm no longer here. <laughs> Good for you. It's nice to hear people talk about their careers that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like you've become a real guide for us in a lot of ways. Whenever we get a message from you, it both sort of shakes my world and makes me feel very hopeful. So thank you for that. Right out oh, of the gate. So good to hear. <laughs> and one of the things that you have written to us about recently, and this is why I think this conversation is sort of like taking the Friday feedback to a new level. Uh, you, you wrote to us to talk about our conversation on identity politics and made the observation that often identity politics is a concept talked about as though it only applies to people who aren't white and that that is really missing the the big picture. So I would love for you to just say more about that and kind of share with our listeners the perspective that you shared with us. Well, when it comes to identity politics, for me, I look at that as a symptom of what I think is the bigger issue that happens in American um, society, U.S. society, and that we do not really deal with the white American identity. So if the white American identity is never addressed or acknowledged as um, a valid and important part of our American culture and being white as being a default human being or American citizen, then we can't have these nuanced conversations about how different cultures in America react um, and evolve. So when we look at this example of identity politics, you know, it deviates into um, how focusing so much on the minority experience, which is also essentially like a co-language for the non-white experience, um, will not be helpful to a certain party or a certain strategy as they prepare for presidential elections or state elections or midterm elections. Mm -hmm. um, and not completely overlooking the fact that this was the most successful identity politics campaign that might have ever existed in American history. Mm -hmm. Very, very much focused um, on the white identity. And I understand the temptation not to deal with it um, because I would say in the past 20 years, 20 to 30 years, when we deal with white identity, it's usually from a negative. And we shouldn't, white identity is something that's inherently negative um, or inherently positive. It's an identity, it just is. But we need to acknowledge it um, and look at how people, how it's being defined, how people are understanding it, the culture and history, the pathology of it, um, to look to how it has impacts on our society today. I mean, there clearly is a need um, for white Americans to feel, to re-embrace their white identity and feel like they are in their white tribe um, and feel comforted in that. And that is not inherently negative. Um, but let's also look at the impacts that come with that. Well, and you know what I've realized the last few days on every, any discussion about particularly this last presidential election is it's like every single discussion we have or every single art article written needs to have a precursor. Are we talking about who voted or are we talking about who won? Because we have the very complex situation in which more people, like a lot more people, voted for Hillary Clinton. 
And in particular, I like the discussions with regards to the sort of identity politics analysis that the idea that Hillary Clinton's policies or campaign or candidacy generally didn't speak to the quote unquote working class is absurd because there were huge portions, obviously people, she got more votes and that, you know, the ideal, this whole idea of the white working class as an identity, it's like, so, you know, the working class that isn't white doesn't matter. And the fact that her message clearly appealed to them doesn't matter. And all of a sudden, because really it's not about being, it's, it's really not about a working class message because her working class message did appeal to a huge proportion of working class people. It's the white part of that identity politics that matters. And again, it's like, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the voting, the peer voting, or are we talking about the, the strategy of the electoral college? It's like, you know, we're having like these sort of intermeshed conversations at the same time, which makes it really difficult because we're talking about two different things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I know what you mean. And like you said, not necessarily dealing completely with one or the other. You're having an intersectional conversation under the guise of having a really direct conversation. Yeah. About yeah. How, you know, she didn't appeal to the working class. It's like, well, lots of people are working class. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's what makes this conversation so incredibly difficult. And what makes it difficult when you talk about identity politics with white people is uh, it's just there's just so much privilege in it including the privilege of not believing you're voting based on your racial identity like that's a privileged argument as well it's a privileged perspective because your race doesn't affect you so you race you don't think your race affects the decisions you make you know what i mean like that because of the privileged mix when we're talking about that identity the privileged history and the privileged politics like it makes it's like this little powder keg just waiting to explode. And and also, um, it prevents other conversations that definitely need to happen about the juxtaposition of white privilege to the white working class and to the white working poor. Like the best example of site is a Pew, um, stat, Pew research study that compared job interview outcomes. White men with a high school education or a GED who had felony records to black men with master's degrees who had no criminal record. And the I want to say the white men were three times as likely to get hired as the black guy. To show that white privilege is very strong. Um, however, if you're not seeing that economically, if you're not seeing that um, in your social economic life, you're really not trying to hear about white privilege. It makes total rational sense. And yeah, exactly. That and that's par- that part of the demographic of the people um, who voted for um, our current president-elect, but it also doesn't explain how, I want to say the median income of the white voters who voted for Trump, I want to, was it 55000 above or 75000 above? Like, it doesn't explain all of that. And that's no. why I think yeah, the I'm, white identity part is very important as well. Right. And I, I think, I think if we're really getting to the, the nitty gritty of this, you know, white identity issue, I think it is that. I think it's that it really... We want to make ourselves feel better, including the people included in this group, by saying it's about economics. But like I said, poor working class people voted for Hillary Clinton in large numbers, so large that she won. So the popular <laughs> vote. So, you know, then it, when you take that out of it, then you have to really think about 
the it's like identity politics doesn't do it justice because it, it's like that's come to mean for better or for worse people using politics to protect their groups rights in a very conscious way and i think so much of white identity politics is subconscious or unconscious you know what i mean i completely agree with that because i don't think it's people showing up to the polls like i'm going to protect my white privilege they don't acknowledge that they have white privilege they think that it's you know about something completely different and it's about you know it's populism it's inside or outside or it's you know cleaning up the swamp and global conspiracies and all that kind of stuff when really it's probably about something a little bit different (laughs) but i think i think there are two there's a conscious and unconscious thing happening at the same time i was listening to a recent episode of a different podcast um our national conversation about conversations about race and um one of the what is the proper term is it podcast dj podcast journalist (laughs) podcaster 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 um one of the podcasters tanner coles he was saying that, you know, he grew up, uh, he's white, and he was saying that, you know, he grew up with his grandpa saying that, I don't remember the exact phrase he used, but the message relayed is, you know, as long as I am doing better than a regular black person, then my life is good. Mm. You know, so also the America dream or, you know, as a person of color, you know, as a woman of color, when I hear make America great again, you know, it's like, and the greatness is in the 50s and the 60s essentially the norm for white people in the 50s and the 60s is really didn't matter how you address education or career planning, your outcome would be much better than people of color. Yeah. You know, there were great economic prospects out for you um, for people of color. And when you look at the angst, you know, that would be going on with working white working poor and white working class is that equality is winning. You know, equality is, is not we're not at complete equality yet, but we haven't proved so much that there's more competition. So in some cases, it is still very much in your benefit to be white. In other cases, it may not help as much as it used to um, because there's more competition uh, in the market. So there's more competing that needs to happen. But that is that is a shock to the system culturally in America because that's new. We've not had that phenomenon before where there is more equal access to all Americans. So if you are used to operating in a reality that gave huge advantages of you um, because you were white, and there's still advantages, but they're, you're not gaining them at the same rate, that is a reaction, and that is a reason to feel upset and to feel like you've been robbed. But we can't have those kind of discussions if we won't even address that why identity and white culture in America exists. Mm. And it's not necessarily you are bad people for feeling this way, but let's acknowledge where the feelings come from. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. 
and they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy what do you say to people who are listening to this conversation and reacting with the sentiment that rather than embracing white identity we stop looking at identity right so i i hear a lot about gender i just want to be gender neutral and i always say hey me too Uh, We're not. And so right now we have to be really intentional about gender because we're not gender neutral. Is that, I don't know how persuasive that response is to folks. And I don't know how that really applies on the racial spectrum, but I would love your thoughts about it. It applies in the exact same way. It's just like, I would love to walk out of my house, like as a human being, you know, like American citizen, keep it moving. Uh, but I'm not given that option. Like I am reminded. So I remember one month I counted and I didn't make the month. I, I don't think I only lasted 10 days because it was just too depressing. 
But from that 10 days of data, I am reminded five to seven times a day that I'm black in conversation in mm. commuting and buying lunch. Like there is a reminder that I am otherized or I'm otherwise for my gender, but being a woman of color, you know, there's intersections. So sometimes it's about my gender, sometimes about my race, sometimes it's about both. So that's not an option in America. Uh, we see, we stereotype, that's how we've operated. That's how we continue to operate. So people do see color. Um, the problem isn't seeing color. The problem is reacting to it differently because you saw it. No, the problem isn't seeing gender. The problem is reacting to that person differently because you notice their gender. So that's the issue. I, I don't have trouble. I don't. I am proud um, to be a black woman in America. As rough as it, as rough as it feels, <laughs> day to day, and how, and how scary that prospect is, um, moving into the future. It's we automatically are treating each other differently because we stereotype, and there's no quick any easy way to solve that. So rather than dealing with the Pollyanna version and wishing wishing it away, I don't have the option. Out, I can't opt out of being Black. I would love to if I really had the choice. I don't have the opportunity to opt out of it. So I have to deal with it. And everyone else has to deal with it because we're interacting with each other in that way. It's more of what I'm hearing is that this is making me uncomfortable wouldn't it be easier if we just act like these things didn't exist? Mm. Which would be lovely, but it's not the case. You know, bad, as my fiancé says, bad news does not get better over time. Well, it, there's so much learning, I think, for the, the idea of embracing a white identity so that you can confront privilege, be more intentional, have more empathy, just be a more educated person living in the world requires a lot of, of learning, right? So when we recorded our podcast the morning after the election, I said something that was that turned out to be not only factually wrong, I speculated that it, it looked like maybe gender was a more powerful motivator than race in people voting, right? And I said, I, I, I wonder if like black men voted for Donald Trump rather than for Hillary Clinton, as everything assumed. And I learned from one of our listeners that that was well, I learned from the exit polling later that that was factually not what happened. But one of our listeners sent me an email to say, you know, that was also pretty insensitive. And here's why. And I appreciated that. I don't take offense to that because I need that sort of education, right? Because I, I remember vividly being in college in sociology class and having the professor say, I want you to write on this piece of paper what it means to you to be white. And I thought it means nothing to me to be white. Like it I don't, I don't associate any meaning with that. So there's all of this learning to do. I just wonder how we can have these conversations without people getting into a defensive posture. The, the only way we can do it is to start having them um, in safe spaces and keep having them. You know, it's going to take repetition. If you look at any movement um, that happened, it's, you know, it wasn't one march, one petition, you know, one hunger strike and it was taken care of. No, it's, a continuation um, of these conversations and a continuation um, of the thought process. I know, I think there are a couple of universities, and I have to reach out to a friend of mine who's a college professor, where white studies programs, I don't know if they exist yet. I know there's a movement to get more of them going, you know, but it also is like a retraining of our language. You know, instead of having black movies and Asian movies, we have white movies. 
you know, like Titanic is a white movie. um, As is, is a wonderful life. It's not a holiday movie. If, if um, the best man holiday is a black Christmas movie, then it's another, or um, love, love actually, you know, is a very white holiday movie. Uh, So it's, you know, how we talk about people, you know, um, Betsy DeVos, you know, is, and uh, Linda McMahon are executives. They're female executives. Um, you know, but Ben Carson is a black man, you know, who, mm. uh, I'm pos- I am blanking on Mitch McConnell's wife's name, but you know, Elaine like, Chow. Her Chow. Thank you. Say the Kentucky girls in Echo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, she's addressed, uh, not only by her, um, you know, Asian identity, but also who she's married to. So that, that is what we do to non-white people in America. So I think the only way to really help focus the minds to do that to everyone, you know, either we point out everyone's race or no one's race. Mm. I think that's an important first step in it. So when you think about the Trump administration as it's taking shape, I am struggling right now with saying a lot about it especially on social media. Usually I'm a pretty prolific Twitter user and I've been pretty quiet lately because I just can't keep myself emotionally amped up about every one of these people every day. And so I, I feel myself start to tweet something critical and then I'm just overwhelmed with the sense of like, this is not who I want to be. And then I read about resistance work and I read posts from my friends who feel extremely threatened by this incoming administration. And I try to examine the privilege embedded in my choice to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to be negative every day. I don't want to be angsty every day about this. And I, I guess I am not sure how to be a helpful support system ally to folks who are overwhelmed by justifiably, right? I have no judgment for how anyone's reacting to this, but I I don't know my place in this conversation because of my whiteness. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I I understand what you're saying. I've had a, I've had, I've been having this conversation ongoing um, with all of my, well, not all of my, but a good, my closest white friends. And I mean, first, you know, as a human being, uh, like make sure you just everyone's taking care of themselves mentally. You know, mm-hmm. check in for as much as you can check in for. Get your rest. Um, you know, and watch news or not watch the news. You know, listen to podcasts. Don't listen to the podcast. Listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> as, as as much as you need to. So I think first, taking care of your mental health um, and your physical health is most important because you know without that you're not going to be helpful to anyone, much less yourself or your family um, immediately. Uh, in terms of how I'm taking it is from the moment, you know, I woke up at 3.05 Eastern time and turned on CNN and saw the results. You know, it, I've had the same feeling that it sustained until now and will sustain until, um, the morning of January 20th will return to something much more extreme, you know, where I am, I am in fear. Like I am in terror. Um, what I call it now, um, is that I'm hangry. So I have appropriated the hangry term, you know, I am still a person of privilege. So there are a lot of things for me in my life to be happy about. So I'm not 
to call myself an unhappy person, be untrue. There are things I am very happy about. Um, but I'm also angry. I'm as angry every day. Every day I'm angry. I probably will stay in a place of anger for a very long time. I don't really see that letting up. You know, and I am angry and I am fearful because the civil rights of essentially all the people of color in America are under attack. You know, it's not so much if, but when and how, you know, no civil rights will be violated. I mean, I, it's not if the Muslim registry returns, it's how and to what extent. It's not if all Latino people are going to be profiled and targeted. It's how badly and to what extent. It's not if stop and frisk is going to be nationalized. It's just how badly and to what extent. You know, it's not that. I don't know if the Voting Rights Act will survive. I don't know if the Civil Rights Act will survive. You know, it's how badly and to what extent. Um, Roe versus Wade, like that, um, where that's going. And I am angry that at least 47% of the voting public had to know that would be the result of their vote and either didn't care or were indifferent to it. I can't get past that. I, I don't know if I'll ever be in place to really want to embrace that person as a fellow citizen because my civil rights are for sale. My civil rights are up for debate for your comfort. Like, I don't know how to reconcile that anger in my head. I don't know how to be nuanced about you. I don't know how to welcome you in my existence, in my plane. I don't know how I'm supposed to be good with that. That's how I'm dealing with that. In terms of support and moving forward for those who have friends who feel um, like I do, I, as I've been, as a friend of mine said very, very smartly, you know, I said, you know, as a black man, because I always wondered who I would be, what I would do, how engaged I would be, you know, in the 1960 civil rights movement. And he said, now we're going to find out, mm-hmm. you know, this, this, this is civil rights movement, the sequel. Yep. Yeah. And now it's, let me talk about racism. The people who terrify me the most, you know, are not the people in the white robes, burning crosses, putting swastikas everywhere. They are not the ones that terrify me because they are consistent. They are out there easy to identify. The people who terrify me the most are those who saw colored and white water fountains. Those who had someone, t- had a black person stand up and take their seat on the bus. It's the people who saw the active racism going on in our society and did nothing. Mm. You know, who were complicit. He said, what can I do? You know, that's how our society is. Those are the rules. And that is what I'm most terrified for going in. It's just like how many white people are going to sit on the sidelines and watch people's <laughs> civil rights get extremely violated. And to see, I can't even imagine the atrocities that are going to come towards, come for us and do nothing. Mm. And that's what I'm most angry about. There are so many people who are going to watch it and do nothing. So it's mostly just get prepared to fight. We don't know what what's going to happen, but we're going to need the fight. And the most important allies coming in the future are the most important civil rights allies in the past. And it was all the white people who got in between the protesters and the police, who got in between um, the activists um, and the angry mobs, and who became victims to the angry mobs and to the police in that fight. So it's how much of your freedom, how much of your safety, how much of your fortune are you willing to put up to protect the civil rights of your fellow Americans? Because that is coming. And that's really what's 
what's needed. So as much as I would love someone to retweet me or to support my angry Facebook posts, I really need bodies. You know, it's when you see someone get pulled over by a police, particularly after stop and frisk is nationalized, are you going to be the white body that stops there, even if you don't record, to have your presence? You know, when um, you see someone being condescended to or being um, attacked, um, even verbally, you know, because they're Muslim or they're Latino, are you going to say something to stop it? Are you going to speak up for that person? These are the, these are what, this is what's going to be needed um, in the future because it's going to require action. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, 
our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I'm reading uh, David Brooks, The Road to Character, and he does two profiles of A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin, who organized the Civil Rights March on Washington in the 60s. And he talks in depth about their sort of political philosophy of nonviolence. And just, you know, I don't think, I think it gets washed over in the historical sort of idolatry to a certain extent of the civil rights movement that like how much has to be sacrificed. I mean, honestly, you see it a little bit in Standing Rock right now. Like they have a success, but they were also sprayed with water cannons and they're in the cold and it takes like in order for resistance and particularly nonviolent resistance to work, it's sort of this, it's, it's sacrificing your comforts and your privileges and luxuries to the movement to say, hey, you know, we are greater together than we are as individuals. And um, we sort of have to sacrifice the stuff laid on the altar of resistance and say, you know, I think what I'm struck by most sort of with the creeping approach of a Trump presidency and what we're facing is like just how comfortable I got and just how comfortable we all got. We just, you know, Barack Obama was in charge. And so we didn't really have to worry about anything. (laughs) And and we were all just, you know, and I think honestly it was to our detriment, right? I think that one person is not the answer, even a person that I have as much respect for as Barack Obama. And, you know, when we say that when we express passionately that Donald Trump has, has, you know, assaults our democracy. I just think, you know, it, if you believe in democracy, it can't just be, it can't just be, you know, showing up to complain about someone you think's disrespected. You have to leave something at the altar, right? You got to leave a little, a little blood, sweat and tears. And I think we just got all out of the, out of the, you know, we just kind of got out of the habit in a way. And I, I think that it's not about, I, I think we thought, at least I thought, I think in particular, when I say we, I think particularly like white liberals thought we'd sort of, you know, we were there. We would, we would complain and say, say oh, all these, you know, people think that just because Barack Obama's president, we don't have racism anymore. And that's just so ridiculous. But did we sort of tell ourselves that as white liberals? Like, did we say like, you know, are, were we so shocked? Because that's, that's sort of my favorite moment is when Dave Chappelle on Saturday Night Live was like, I'm not surprised. See, white people don't think you're sneaky as you think we are. You know, like, I felt like the, the the sort of consistent thing I heard from my black friends was, this is not surprising. You know, like, Tracy Clayton did a really great thing on on the, the BuzzFeed Live, uh, who we both went to college with, and he works at BuzzFeed. And during their, like, sort of live coverage, she was like, I just kind of feel like now y'all get it. Like... <laughs> Like, this is here all along, and y'all thought it wasn't, it's here, and now it's more powerful, and now we're all going to have to, you know, make some tough choices and make some hard choices, and um, democracy is an ongoing experiment. It's not a finish line, right? And that's where we are right now. We're, we're going to, we're hitting part of the journey that's going to be incredibly difficult, and people are going to get hurt. Yeah, and- I- you, you've also brought up a world of <laughs> conversations, particularly deals with um, white liberals and race. I mean, I think as we get into white studies, like that's a fascinating case study in itself. Yeah. Because uh, it's it's like very um, well-intentioned, progressive-minded group of people 
but I would say are the most likely to operate in a space of white privilege. Like I find it in most cases, most frustrating to discuss race um, with a lot of white liberals than like anybody else. I mean, I think I, I totally understand where you're coming from because I, I think it's similar with sexism. Yes. I had a lot of frustrating conversations with male liberals. It operates in a very similar way. Um, it's it's looking at the success of um, like how far we've come and not so much focused on where we need to go in blind spots. Um, I wish I had a liberal example for this. The best example I have for, for this um, comes from conservatives. But... Um, I found out when I was engaging in echo the, um, the exit of the echo chamber, I was to like reach out to people who were brave enough that I know who are brave enough on Facebook to be like, I voted for Trump and I'm willing to talk about it. And what I found from that and also your recommendation to listen to, um, the Federalist podcast is like, like this really weird, um, it even got in my workplace, um, when I brought up, you know, this like black people, you know, and a uh, Republican party. And it's, it always came back down to inner cities and vouchers. And I thought that was like the strangest phenomenon <laughs> I've ever witnessed in my life. But it's a perfect example of if you, and what I got from that is that these people clearly do not have good friends um, mm -hmm. that are black. Like you may know people. Um, and someone asked, like, how do you know if you have a good black friend? It's like, well, I can only answer this question if um, your black friend is female. If you don't know if you can't speak in detail about her hair care regimen, you're not good <laughs> friends. Like, you're not good friends. That is the test. Yeah. That is the test. If you are good friends with a black woman, a black man, there's not so there's not so easy a test on <laughs> that one. Um, but yeah, I would say like a very similar thing with white liberals is very similar responses of, well, you know, this has happened or, you know, I have more people in my circle, you know, who are diverse. I'm like, yeah, I get that, which is good, but like, who are you generally friends with? You know, how, how much learning are you doing um, interculturally? And, like, also for all of us to be aware of our biases, you know, because we're progressive or because I'm a person of color does not mean that I am without biases. I think um, if anything comes from this, just helpful people be aware of your blind spot, our blind spots and our biases. And we can never be bias-free, but it's, it's helpful if we are aware of our biases. And you know, I had uh, my family's, a lot of Genesis, my family's from the South, and we had a lot of our family, most of the family reunions are in the South. And I, I went to a boarding school um, that has very strong Southern roots. So I have biases for um, tall, like football build white men with Southern accents. That has a negative trigger for me from experiences I had. It's unfair. I know it's happening, but I know that's a bias that I have. Uh, so I forced myself to deal with that and not to have a typical reaction that I did have before I was under, before I was consciously aware of my bias. And I'd say that's also another helpful thing for everyone to engage in, you know, to be aware of our biases so we don't give Pavlovian responses when we're challenged on issues about race, identity, race and identity. I'm, I'm thinking about your statement that, you know, the the folks who voted for Trump took a pass on caring about civil rights and knowing that, you know, we have people who listen to us who made the choice to vote for Donald Trump. They still listen to us and still come back and engage in, you know, thoughtful conversations sometimes. And I, th and I think about um, 
how how they might and I you know I can't articulate this because I didn't make that choice but how they might articulate that 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 in their mind wasn't the decision and I wonder how we can bring people around the table to talk about how from your perspective that might not have been the decision here's why it was from my perspective what can you take from that that's positive do you know what I mean um, because I, I, I feel like getting people to that bias that you were just talking about really requires some understanding of that question as a threshold coming out of this election. Well, that's, that's a really strong point. And, and I would say on that particular point on, you know, taking the past and the civil rights of America, I would say the, the trauma, um, of the, the last, the, the, um, result of Trump being elected um, is such that a lot of people of color, men of color, men, women of color, have gotten to the point that we can't handle white fragility right now. So right. that I would put that rationale, while probably 100% in their conscious mind, I, was, I did not vote to say, hey, I don't care about your civil rights. It's gotten to the point that I can't, I have spent my entire life trained by my parents and my grandparents, you know, on essentially how to move and operate in America in a way that makes white people comfortable. Like that is my entire existence to be like, I have nieces and nephews that we already started their training because that's what it is to be a person of color in America. You have to be trained on how to make white people comfortable and happy and feel safe so that you stay safe. And I can't, I can't do it <laughs> on this decision. Like I can't care about your feelings because I have to figure out how to protect my rights. So that is what happened when this man was elected president. People's rights are put under threat. That may not have been your intention, but that is the result. And there is no nice way to say or package that. That is an impact of that. That is part of that decision. That's what comes with that decision. You know, it's like when you have a drug and it has all these weird side effects, people's civil rights being violated is a side effect of that decision and you got to own it. Not that that's what you want to do. That's what your intention was in voting for it, but that's the result. And there, I, there's not a nice way to package it or make people feel better about it. It's not necessarily that I want people crucified for it, but that has to be owned. Like responsibility has to be taken for that one. There is no entitled way to sidestep that. Yeah. And I raise it not to make people feel better, just to say like, it, there's a learning there's a learning in, in having that discussion, right? There's, there's like, I think hearing, and, and I've heard this from a lot of people, you know, hearing people put it in the terms of, look, Trump is a threat to anyone who is not a white man, right? That is educational to people who don't view it that way, right? And so I guess that's my focus, just how do we, how do we have that discussion without crucifying people over it, but also without going out of our way to make everyone feel good about what is a really traumatic situation. Yeah, um, probably the best response for that is a tweet I saw, like right after the election, it was like, white people get your white people. Like this is perhaps, that's probably the opening salvos of those conversations. It's better had with white people than other white people. I. I can't imagine, I mean, outside of Van Jones and Trevor Noah, I can't really think of too many other um, people of color who are 
willing to approach it in a way that feels safe Hmm. for a Trump voter. And I think asking people to do that in the immediate future will not be helpful and healthy to them. But I I really think that's a perfect area um, for, you know, white Americans to talk to white Americans Uh, because they're, they're, there's not the immediate impact and the raw emotions um, from the feeling of threat. Tamla, thank you so much for talking with us and for all of the messages that you send us. Like I said, I just, I learn a lot from you and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for being open. I really do love you ladies a lot. Sometimes I feel like I'm beating up on you, which is definitely not my intent. So uh, yeah, I just appreciate you all so much. You do amazing work. With this podcast, it was the best iTunes reference I ever got. Uh, Aww, so thank, thank you, you so for much. what you all do twice a week. It really is a gift. We hope that you enjoyed that discussion. I just want to thank Tamala again because it's a big ask to have her come on and, and discuss these difficult subjects with us, difficult and emotional. And we really appreciate it. I am certain that we'll hear your, your reactions to it uh, via email and on social media this week. And until we talk with you again on Tuesday, keep it nuanced, y'all.